right, Andrew May here, Mets Mayhem episode three. And I'm so glad that I have this podcast as a platform to talk about the Mets because what's been happening with the Mets this season is exactly what I thought was going to happen. It's a roller coaster of emotions. And it's been that way since the start of the season. Here we are. We are 17 games in. One day, highest of highs on cloud nine. The next day, it's this team stinks. What are we going to do? The sky is falling. And I don't know if it's the New York in us because in this city, when you're a fan of a team, the expectations are championship. You need to perform right away or go scratch. I don't know necessarily what it is. Maybe it's because as Mets fans, we've been trained to expect the worst at all possible times. And that's why when things go well, we're so surprised and there's just shock value in it. I don't know what exactly it is, but the season's been a roller coaster, and that's what I'm here to talk about on episode three. Uh, I'm not going to be a negative Nancy this time around because there's a lot of things to be positive about. Despite the Mets going two and four this week and being swept at the hands of the Cubs in Wrigley Field, which was a disgusting series to watch, so you would probably think that there's a lot of negative to be said about that series, but I, I really don't. I, I'm not going to focus and dwell on that too much because it was a blip in the road. If you look at the numbers over the past decade or so, Besides the 2015 NLCS, the Mets have had a world of trouble in Wrigley Field. I mean, it's been a house of horrors for them. Everything that can go wrong will go wrong when they play in that ballpark, for the exception of the Cinderella run back in the 2015 playoffs. So they get swept at Wrigley Field, and then they take two out of three against the Nationals this weekend, which was very impressive, and it was a good way to end the week. So we'll start things off the way we always do, just kind of recapping game by game what happened this past week. And we'll start with Wrigley Field. And like I said, I'm not going to dwell too much on it because I don't want to focus on the negative because there actually was a lot of positives to get into this week. So let's just run through the games real quick. Tuesday night, they fall 3-1. to one. More of the same for the Mets. Couldn't hit with runners in scoring position. In fact, they didn't even have runners in scoring position that often. Uh, the one run coming from a J.D. Davis home run, but he did make two errors in the field. Taiwan Walker walked six batters. It was the first time we've seen him uh, not at his best in a Mets uniform. Um, and Walker's got to clean that up a little bit. And if there's anything we've seen over the first four starts from Taiwan Walker, it's that when he's not on his game, he becomes so erratic and just completely loses touch of the strike zone. Uh, when he's on his game, he looks pretty unhittable. And that hasn't been uh, par for the course for him over his career. He's never really been a shutdown pitcher, but I like what I've seen from Walker when he has command of the strike zone. But like I said, walked six hitters, was not sharp, um, but he had another outing, and I'll get to that in a little bit. He had another outing this afternoon, this Sunday, and uh, he looked really good, so he was able to bounce back. But yeah, just a poor game for the Mets. They lose 3-1. Then the next night, I'm just going to kind of pass over that. They lose 16-4. to Another error by J.D. Davis at, at third base. Um, the pitching was awful. Lucchese did not look good. Uh, Trevor Hildenberger came in the game. He did not look good. Uh, and he was op optioned to AAA after the game. Luis Guillorme ends up pitching the ninth inning. Just uh, Let's just move on from that game. Let's not dwell on that. And then in the Thursday game, they lose 4-3. to The Cubs complete the sweep, an extra inning loss. Um, and I have a bone to pick with Luis Rojas about this game. And that's going to be a recurring theme on this podcast, quite frankly. It seems like every week so far, because this is three weeks into the season, um, there's one Luis Rojas decision that really catches my attention and is one that just makes me scratch my head. So in the Thursday game, 
the Mets fall behind early, and they battle their way back, right? The bats come alive. Pete Alonso hits a home run. J.D. Davis, RBI double. The game is tied at three. Now, Miguel Castro comes into a situation with a runner on third in the bottom of the eighth inning, and he's able to get a strikeout and not allow any runs to cross the plate. So we go into the ninth inning in a tie game. Uh, But Castro, who only throws five pitches, he gets removed from the game, and Rojas puts Edwin Diaz in the game in the bottom of the ninth inning in a non-save situation. Now, we know Edwin Diaz, throughout the course of his career, his numbers are exponentially worse in non-save situations. Now, granted, Diaz does not allow any runs in the ninth inning, so it ends up working out. But now, because your starting pitcher... Only went three innings. Sean Reed Foley comes in relief, and he goes three innings. So your bullpen looks good. You would think if your starter goes three innings under normal circumstances, you're going to have to completely empty the barn in the bullpen. But that was not the case because Sean Reed Foley, who was one of the pitchers the Mets got in return in the Steven Matz trade, he looked really good. Eight up three innings in the bullpen, which is more than you can ask for. But Diaz comes back out again for the 10th inning, and he, he hits the first batter he faces, gives up a base hit to Jason Hayward. The Cubs win the game. And it just begs the question, uh, these front offices and these managers are so in love with the advanced analytics, but yet when there's such simple statistics right in front of their faces, they just choose to ignore them. You know that Edwin Diaz stinks in non-save situations. You know this. But instead, you put him in the game. And not that it didn't work out in the ninth inning because he was able to. But when you're the road team, you don't use you don't use your, your closer in the bottom of the ninth inning in a tie game. The Cubs are going to have last licks no matter what. You're playing at Wrigley Field. You want to wait until you have a lead to empty your closer until you absolutely have to. And they didn't have to in that moment. They could have put Castro in the game in the ninth inning and kept Diaz away. This way, if you wanted to use Diaz in the 10th, he's only pitching for one inning. Because the only thing worse than Edwin Diaz in a non-save situation is Edwin Diaz in multiple inning appearances. But Rojas thought that that was a good idea. He serves up a hit. Mets lose. Listen, we know that he's inexperienced as a manager. We know he continues to make head-scratching decisions. He's like 0 for 5 so far in those kinds of decisions so far this season. And I just hope to God that down the stretch, if the Mets are in a playoff race, that these decisions, these monumental decisions do not come back to bite them. Because in every situation where you, you have, you're presented with an opportunity to either go one of two ways, Rojas seems to always choose the wrong way. And it's a lot of Mets fans, not just me, a lot of Mets fans are concerned about it. So that's my bone to pick with Luis Rojas. But like I said, I don't want to focus too much on the negative tonight because there is a lot of positives. So we'll brush over the Wrigley series. Wrigley's a house of horrors. Nothing you could do about it. Mets drop all three. They fall back to 500. Then a three-game set at home against the Washington Nationals this weekend. And Friday night was the Jacob deGrom show. And he just captivated not only New York City, but the entire baseball world with the performance that he put up on Friday night. It was one for the ages, and that's saying something for Jacob deGrom, a guy who already has two Cy Youngs and a Rookie of the Year under his belt. I mean, this might have been the best performance deGrom has ever had. He goes nine innings, which in today's era of baseball is almost unheard of, goes the full nine, surrenders two hits, no runs, no walks, 15 strikeouts. 
15 strikeouts, and in the 8th and ninth inning, he didn't strike out a single batter. He did not strike out a batter in the 8th and ninth inning, so the last six outs he got were recorded in the field behind him. That's how dominant he was. And to boot, he drove in a run with an RBI double earlier in the game and got a single in the 8th inning. So he was 2 for 4, helped his own cause with the bat too. And I know I made a remark on last week's episode about how even though there's a limited capacity at City Field, the place sounds electric. Well, that place was going crazy on Friday night. The 8,000, I think it was 8,200 people paid in attendance. It sounded like 40,000. There were MVP chants. I mean, it was just, it was just insane. And the Mets scored some runs for him. They win 6 nothing, which is always good because the major complaint every time DeGrom is on the mound, the Mets either cough the lead up when he leaves the game and the bullpen comes in or the bats don't score. Neither happened. You didn't have to go to the bullpen because DeGrom went the full nine innings and the bats showed up for the most part. Brandon Nimmo drove in four runs. DeGrom drove in a run himself. So the bats looked good. The bats started waking up a little bit on Friday. You look to carry that momentum into Saturday, but they don't. They lose 7-1. to Stroman, for the first time this year, did not have his good stuff. He was hit all around the ballpark. Not a good performance for Marcus Stroman whatsoever. And the bats dormant once again, so they lose 7-1. And then this afternoon, Sunday, a big 4 nothing win to take the rubber game of the series. They take 2 out of 3 from the Nationals. Taiwan Walker, as I mentioned earlier, a really good bounce-back start from him after a poor outing at Wrigley Field. He, he was really good today. I mean, he still walked three guys, and that seems to be the only complaint with Walker so far is that he loses touch with the strike zone on occasion. But he goes seven innings, only gives up three hits, three walks, four strikeouts. Um, Walker has been a godsend for this team. He really has. I know towards the end of free agency, a lot of Mets fans got antsy because the starting rotation, which was probably the Achilles heel for this team in 2020 in the shortened 60-game season, um, the starting rotation, besides the acquisition of Carrasco, really was was unaccounted for. And you saw Jake Odorizzi was still on the market. Taiwan Walker was still on the market. And the Mets did not seem interested in any of them. And then they pulled the trigger late to bring in Walker on a two-year deal. And he's been superb. He's been everything you could have asked for and more, Taiwan Walker. He really has. Uh, Pete Alonso with a home run. J.D. Davis with a home run off of Patrick Corbin. And he owns Patrick Corbin. Four home runs in 28 career at-bats against Patrick Corbin. Uh, well, it's probably... 31 at-bats now because he had a couple more against Corbin and actually collected a few more hits. So J.D. Davis just owns Patrick Corbin in every sense of the word. Um, so they take two out of three from the Nationals. So overall, a two and four week, you probably wouldn't think that you could take a lot of positives out of a week where you lose four games and only win two. But I'm going to get into those positives because there is a lot of positives to take away from what we saw from the Mets uh, minus the Wrigley Field series. So now what we're going to do is we're going to go back in time to the questions, storylines, concerns, or topics that we had to look forward to going into week three of the Mets season. And I'll just preface this by saying that there's really not a whole lot that can be said about the storylines from last week because it would just be too short-sighted to come up with a definitive answer to some of these questions. Um, the, the first question I had was whether or not Marcus Stroman was worthy of a contract extension. And you can't really analyze that on a start-to-start basis. You're going to need to see a full body of work of Marcus Stroman from the beginning of the season until the end of the season. Um, but I will say Marcus Stroman uh, and his poor performance uh, did kind of open some eyes. You, you kind of realize that what Stroman has been doing for the first three starts of the season is, is he's pitching way over his head. 
and he regressed to the mean and passed the mean because you're not going to see Stroman pitch that poorly. But when you have a guy like Stroman who does not overpower guys with his velocity, he's a finesse pitcher, pitches with sink, mixes up speeds, and has to paint corners. If he does not have command of all of his pitches, he's just asking to be teed off on. Because any major league hitter, if they're getting 93-mile-an-hour fastballs right down Broadway, they're going to tee off. I mean, I pray that this Mets offense that's been sleepwalking so far this season, I pray that they see someone like Stroman when he's off his game. Because any major league hitter, whether they're in a slump or whether they're on fire, they're going to tee off on a pitcher like that. But like I said, you can't just take Stroman's performance this week against the Nationals and write him off as an extension candidate. Like I said, it would be moronic, it would be short-sighted, so you don't have a definitive answer on that. That's something you're going to have to look forward to. My other point where I said that James McCann was a signing of the offseason, even though Francisco Lindor stole, uh, stole all the headlines, again, that's not something that you can necessarily analyze on a week-by-week basis. That was just a take that I had, and I think over the course of a season, if the Mets are able to steal a couple wins by doing fundamentals and playing small ball, I think McCann is going to be an instrumental part of that. And I think that his presence on this team is going to be a little underappreciated until he continues to do it over and over again. You consistently see him block balls in the dirt with a runner on third base. You see him throw a couple runners out at second base. You see him, who he's a natural hitter that likes to go the other way. You see him ground out the second base, get a runner in from third with less than two outs. You're going to appreciate him over time. So again, that's not something you can look at on a week-by-week basis. My one concern that you can kind of give a definitive answer to or I can analyze a little bit was the question that I posed, which was when are these bats going to wake up? And I thought for sure that once the Mets started getting their feet under them and actually had a full week of baseball where they didn't have any cancellations, which by the grace of God, they didn't have any cancellations this week, but you didn't see a whole lot from the offense. You saw some promise towards the end of the week. Right, They got some hits in Jacob DeGrom's start on Friday, which is certainly a promising sign because that's something that they have been unable to do for three, four years now, is give Jacob DeGrom run support. And I'm not asking them to move mountains here. I mean, when Jacob DeGrom goes out there and he's on his A game, realistically, you only need one run to win the game. And sometimes they're unable to even do that. They were able to get him six runs, which was good. The offense was clicking on Sunday, which was good. Yes, they only had four runs. And yes, there were a couple times where they had runners in scoring position, one inning in particular where they had the bases loaded and they settled for only one run. You'd like to see them do more. You'd like to see them extend innings. You'd like to see them get more runs and not just settle for one when the opportunity presents itself. But at least they didn't walk away with zero, which is something we've seen on different occasions throughout the season. The offense got eight hits. There was a couple walks. A lot of guys put together good at bats. So at least I, I, I would like to think that they're starting to turn a corner. I don't know if that's wishful thinking, but we know that this offense is not going to sleepwalk through the whole season. We've seen these guys. They're major league hitters. It's only a matter of time before they snap out of it and start clicking. And I think once they have their feet under them, again, they got a full week of games this week without any cancellations. Maybe they'll start getting a rhythm a little bit. And I think we're going to start to see, I'm not going to go as far as saying potent because I'm going to have to see that before I'm able to say that. 
But I think an offense that's going to go out there and is going to consistently score you four-plus runs on a given night. right? They're not going to always slug their way to victory. But a team that's going to be able to cash in when they get runners on base, I think they're going to be capable of doing that once they start getting full weeks of baseball without cancellations, playing some teams outside their division. I think everything is going to fall into place. So certainly a great way to end the week from an offensive perspective. Now let's get in to the storylines that I took away from this week and that we're going to continue to look towards moving forward. Number one, and this is the most important, and this is why I said that even though they had a two and four week, I wanted to focus on the positive. Because honestly, on Friday night, I'm talking three, four hours after the game ended, I was still checking out highlights, listening to post-game interviews, watching Sports Night just to get a glimpse of what people were saying on SNY because I was just in awe at what we saw from Jacob deGrom. And it's kind of, I don't know if corny is the right word. Maybe I'm being soft and maybe I'm just being, you know, I don't know what the word is to describe the way I felt after that game on Friday night, but all I can say is that it really changed my perspective of what Jacob deGrom means to me personally and the Mets. Normally, when your ace pitcher steps on the mound, you're excited because he's going to put you in a position to win the game. And you like when your ace goes out there and has a shutdown performance and keeps the other team's bats quiet all game long because you have a good chance to win. And when a pitcher starts doing that consistently over an extended period of time, that's when they solidify themselves as an ace and start getting recognition. But Jacob deGrom is on a whole different planet with the body of work that he's put together. He's 33 years old and he just continues to get better. And like I said, the majority of Met fans, when deGrom's pitching, everyone wants to tune in. Because we know how great he is. But, and I don't know if this is for a lot of other people too or if it's just for me. But I just, I'm looking at his greatness through a little bit of a different lens now. And it's actually gotten to the point where I don't even necessarily care if the Mets win or lose the game anymore when DeGrom pitches. I'm just cherishing the moments where I get to see him pitch. Because after that performance on Friday night, which, as I said, was probably the best performance of his tremendous career so far. And you hear guys like Keith Hernandez, who played on the 1986 World Champion Mets, when you hear him say that even Dwight Gooden on his best day cannot match what DeGrom is doing so far this year. When you hear Gary Cohen compare DeGrom to Sandy Koufax... And when you hear people comparing DeGrom to the franchise, Tom Seaver, those three guys, right? Gooden and Seaver when it comes to the Mets. Koufax when it it just comes to baseball as a whole. Now, I'm 23 years old, so I didn't get to see any of those guys pitch. It's just hearsay, and it's just stuff that, you know, information that was passed down by my dad, who's a diehard fan, and from stories I've heard and highlights that I've seen on YouTube. I didn't get to watch those guys pitch. I just have an image of what they were, and I just go by what I'm told as far as how spectacular those guys were. 
They're legends. When you hear DeGrom compared to and even being put above those guys, that's when it really opens your eyes to how great he is. And guys like that do not come around often. And I was having this conversation the other day with my dad, and I said, listen, there's pitchers who rack up strikeouts on a year-to-year basis, right? Clayton Kershaw, Max Scherzer. These are guys who always are at the top of the league in strikeouts when it's all said and done. And part of the reason is because they just have really good strikeout pitches, right? Clayton Kershaw, that 12-6 to curveball, ugh, nobody can touch it. It's just a great pitch. Scherzer just has that upwards element to his fastball that he throws up in the zone with two strikes, and it's just, it's an unhittable pitch. He's a pretty good slider, too. DeGrom is not racking up the strikeouts because he has a strikeout pitch. Every batter that steps in the box to face DeGrom is swinging and missing from the first pitch to the end of the at-bat. I mean, they don't stand a chance. Every pitch he throws is unhittable. Now, I was looking at a pitch chart from the game he pitched on Friday night. Every single fastball was up in the zone and on the left-hand corner or the right-hand corner. Every single slider he threw was lowing into a lefty, lowing away to a righty. Every changeup he threw, lowing away, lowing in. Every single one. There was not one pitch that left his hands that didn't go exactly where he wanted it to go. He wasn't facing a JV team. I mean, he was facing the Nationals who have a good lineup. And they didn't stand a chance. And this isn't one of those performances where you're just like, wow, that was a great game. Probably won't see that again. No, we'll we'll probably see it next week. DeGrom does this on a start-by-start basis. And like I said, it's gotten to the point now where I'm not even necessarily concerned. And that might be... That might be over-exaggerating a little bit because I'm a diehard Mets fan. My, the whole, my whole mood during the day kind of relies on whether or not the Mets win or lose. So I don't want to go that far. But it's just, that might be a secondary concern of mine when DeGrom steps on the mound from now on. Because I'm just so locked into watching him because I know that I'm not going to be able to watch him pitch forever. Anyone who's a football fan, I mean, I can't stand Tom Brady. I'm a big Pittsburgh Steelers fan. So a lot of times the Pittsburgh Steelers fall short of getting to the Super Bowl because they had to go through Tom Brady, and they couldn't do it. And Brady just continues to win championship after championship after championship. And I can't stand the guy, but at a certain point, I'm like, you know what? When I have kids, 20 years from now, I'm going to be telling them, hey, I got to watch Tom Brady play. And I'm going to be grateful that I did, even though I couldn't stand the guy while he was playing. It's going to be the same thing with Jacob DeGrom. Years from now, I'm going to be telling my kids and grandkids, I got to watch Jacob DeGrom pitch. He is that great. That great. There's not even any more words to describe what Jacob DeGrom is. What he is for the Mets, what he is for this city, this fan base. I just hope to God that he's able to pitch in a World Series game. And I... and I. I wish that COVID wasn't a thing because even though that 8,000 that were in the ballpark sounded like 40,000, I wish there was a full house because that place would have been electric. So I guess my main point to Mets fans is just don't take Jacob DeGrom's starts for granted. 
If they lose the game, yeah, you could get mad at the Mets if they don't have any, if they don't provide him with any run support or if they make errors in the field behind him or if the bullpen coughs it up. You could be disgusted by things like that. But at the end of the day, just be glad that you were able to see Jacob DeGrom pitch another game because guys like this do not come around often. And when they do, cherish when you're able to see them because he is that good. He is that good. I didn't get to see guys like Sandy Koufax and Nolan Ryan and Tom Seaver. I got to see a little bit of Randy Johnson. I got to see a little bit of Pedro Martinez. I mean, thinking about growing up, I was able to watch Roy Halladay, who I thought was just a technician. You know, I didn't get to see that much of Greg Maddox. But I've heard so many stories about Greg Maddox. I mean, this is your modern-day version of these pitchers as far as greatness level is concerned. So just... Just be thankful you're able to see him play. That's really all I can say because he is that good. The second storyline, and again, it's another positive, is that the major league depth that the Mets have filled their roster with this year is really paying dividends early on in the season. Now, I'm going to list you five guys. And these five guys that I'm about to mention, this is not a joke This is not, you know, cherry-picking five random people. No, these were the five guys that were on the bench for the Mets in a September game back in 2018. Jack Reinheimer, Ty Kelly, Kevin Kazmarski, Matt Dendecker, and Jose Lobaton. That's not a joke. Those were five guys that the Mets deployed on their bench for a September game back in 2018. That is nauseating. It's pathetic. This year, and I complimented the Mets for it in the offseason, they filled their roster roster with complementary major league level pieces as depth. So now you look at the Mets on any given day, and they have Tomas Nito, who, listen, Nito is not great, but he's a good backup catcher. He's more than adequate at playing the position. He has his moments with the bat. The pitchers have a rapport with him for the most part in terms of the guys who have been here, right? Stroman has pitched to him. DeGrom has pitched to him. The relief pitchers, Lugo, Diaz, those guys have pitched to him. When Syndergaard comes back from Tommy John, he's pitched to him. So there's value in having a guy like Nito. Kevin Pillar, they signed in the offseason. I mean, Pillar, he's a good defender. Again, he's another guy who has his moments with the bat, but... These these are why these guys are not everyday players, because they don't do everything well. They just provide you with a little something here and there that can help you win a ball game. Now, if you remember, opening night in Philadelphia, Reese Hoskins in the first inning hit a ball off the wall in right center field off Jacob DeGrom, and he tried to leg out a triple. And Kevin Pillar played the ball beautifully off the wall, delivered a strike to the relay man, and they gunned down Reese Hoskins at third base. Those kinds of things matter. Jonathan VR, another offseason pickup. He's a veteran who has been on a bunch of different teams. He's a major league player. He's been really good with the bat. He's had a handful of big hits. He had a pinch hit RBI double against the Colorado Rockies in game one of the doubleheader last week. He had a walk-off hit against the Phillies in game one of a doubleheader against them at home last week at City Field. He plays a good defense. He played a really big role. Again, once again this afternoon... Victor Robles hits a ball into the right center field gap. Conforto hits VR on a fly as the relay man, and VR VR delivers a perfect one-hop strike to third base to throw out Victor Robles. And Robles is one of the fastest guys in baseball. It was picture-perfect defense. 
that's the kind of thing you want to see. Luis Guillorme. Listen, I've been a huge critic of Luis Guillorme. When he first came up, I think it might have been 2018, maybe it was 2017, I thought the guy stunk. I thought he stunk. And he did stink. All we heard about was how good his glove was. I was not impressed with his glove. And he couldn't hit water if he fell off a boat. Fast forward a couple years later, and now Luis Guillorme is a formidable major league hitter. He's a tough out off the bench. Now, he's the kind of guy that I guess I can compare a little bit to Wilmer Flores. And now they're totally different players, but they're similar in the sense that Wilmer Flores provided you with a good, capable hitter off the bench. And if you used him in spurts, he could be successful. If you put him in the everyday lineup and you played him on a daily basis, his weaknesses started to be exploited and he wasn't as effective. And Guillaume, I think, is the same way. And you saw it. They, they put him in the leadoff spot and gave him a start the other day and he was 0 for 4. He was not very good. So in no way, shape, or form is he an everyday player. But again, you don't need to be an everyday player when you're being deployed in the role in which he's being deployed as a bench piece. Give me a good at bat when you're pinch hit when you're pinch hitting coming off the bench in the eighth inning, leading off an inning. Give me a good at bat. Draw a walk. Slap the ball the other way. Get a base hit. Steal a base. Come in as a defensive replacement in the seventh or eighth inning. Make a routine play. Go to third base. Turn me over a quick 5-4-3 double play to get us out of an inning. That's the kind of thing you want to see, and he's capable of doing that because he is a major league player. Albert Almora. He was a guy that, that, that signing was criticized by a lot of fans. Everyone was enamored with Jackie Bradley Jr. Everyone was enamored with George Springer. I was one of them. Albert Almora was a cheap signing that a lot of fans ridiculed. He's not an everyday player, but he plays a good center field. And he made a humongous catch in today's game to rob Kyle Schwarber of an extra base hit, saved two runs, got Taiwan Walker out of the sixth inning, and actually... It enabled Walker to go out there for a seventh inning. Almora's first start of the season makes an immediate impact. That's what you need from your bench players. When their number is called on, they need to provide you with major league level play. And that's exactly what Almora did this afternoon. He runs the bases well too. He came in as a pinch runner last week, was able to score from first on an extra base hit. Those are the kinds of things you ask for from your bench players. And your bench players can't do that unless they're major league pieces. And that's what these guys are. They're major league players. And don't forget, another offseason signing that they made was Jose Martinez. He tore his meniscus in spring training. He's going to be out for a bit. I would probably place a wager on the fact that he's going to come back at some point and play in a Mets uniform. When? I don't know. But he's another major league piece. He's a really, really good hitter. He's the kind of guy that's positionless, but again, he doesn't need to be an everyday player. I don't care if you don't necessarily have a position. I need you to put together a good at-bat when we call your name to come off the bench and pinch hit in the eighth inning. And he can do that. So one aspect of constructing a roster that was ignored for years finally was not ignored under the current regime. And we're seeing early on, 17 games into the season, we're seeing it pay dividends because all of these guys have contributed in some way, shape, or form. And that's the kind of thing you need if you want to be a championship caliber team. 
You don't always need the superstars. Like, look at the Dodgers, for instance. Yeah, I understand they have Mookie Betts, and they have Cody Bellinger, and they have Corey Seager, and the starting rotation is stacked. But, I mean, look at what the Dodgers are doing right now. Zach McKinstry. I bet you 90% of the people that are listening to this podcast have no idea who he is. And I'll be quite frank, I had no idea who he was until about a week ago. He was a 37th round pick by the Dodgers. Now he's a bench player, and he's already got 13 RBIs in this young season. Edwin Rios, big left-handed bat off the bench. Chris Taylor, kind of guy who can start. He can play a multitude of different positions. He can come off the bench. Like, they just have filled their roster out. Even though they have the star power and the Seegers and the Turners and the Betts and the Bellingers, they also have those complementary pieces that can't go ignored because they'll play an instrumental role. So I'm glad that the Mets finally didn't ignore that aspect of their roster and they filled it up with major league talent because they didn't always do that. And that list of five guys I told you, that's a prime example of how they felt about bench depth in years past. And I'm not even mentioning some other guys. The Eric Campbells of the world and the Gavin Cicchinis of the world. It was embarrassing. Now it's not a weakness anymore. Now it's actually a strength. Now the third storyline, and this is a little bit of a negative because this is one of the things that has reared its ugly head a couple times this week, and it's a legitimate question. It's a legitimate question, and I'm not saying that either way you fall on this issue, you're wrong. I'm not saying that because I understand both sides of this argument, but it's food for thought, and I'm curious to hear a lot of Mets fans' perspective on how they feel about this issue. My question is, are you comfortable with J.D. Davis as the everyday third baseman? Now, what occurred at Wrigley Field during the week in the three-game series with the Cubs was embarrassing. Embarrassing. I don't need gold glovers at every position. I don't. But I just ask that you make the routine plays when they are presented your way. And J.D. Davis, for the most part, has not been able to do that. And we saw firsthand what happens when you can't make routine plays. And in, I believe it was, I think it was Tuesday's game, he made a costly error and a run came into score. And then in Wednesday's game, he made another poor error and the floodgates opened. David Peterson was pitching a good game. He went through three innings facing the minimum. And then in the fourth inning, with first and second and one out, he gets a routine 5-4-3 double play ball hit at him from Javier Baez. I mean, it, it, a picture-perfect ground ball. Wasn't even bouncing. It was just on the ground, easy. And it pops out of his glove, and he's not able to get any outs. And then the floodgates open, and the Cubs ended up scoring seven runs that inning. It seems like every single time an error is made, the floodgates open, and it comes back to bite the Mets. And like I said, I don't need Gold Glovers playing the position. I don't need a team full of Ozzie Smiths. I don't need a team full of, you know, Nolan Arenados as far as fielding is concerned. But I just need you to make the routine plays because when you don't, you're gifting the other team outs. And J.D. Davis has made the situation and the question that much more complicated because he is absolutely raking at the plate. 
So that's why it begs the question. Because if J.D. Davis wasn't hitting, then I think this would be an easy discussion. He's a liability in the field, and he's not hitting. So let's get him out of there, put VR at third base, put Guillaume at third base, and, and, you know, problem solved. And that was the complaint with Wilson Ramos, right? In 2019, Wilson Ramos, he was god-awful behind home plate. He was a terrible defensive catcher. But he's going to hit you 295. He's going to drive in some runs. So you take the good with the bad. In 2020, Wilson Ramos couldn't hit a lick. And again, he stunk behind the plate. So that is when everyone came to the realization, we need a new catcher. This guy cannot do the job. So if Davis wasn't hitting, there you go. You have your answer. Take him out, put him on the bench, put in Jonathan VR, call it a day. But that's not the case because J.D. Davis is hitting over 400. He hit a home run in Wrigley Field, the only run that the Mets scored in Tuesday's 3-1 loss. He hit another home run off of Patrick Corbin today. He hit an RBI double in Thursday's game against the Cubs. He's just, he's smacking the ball all over the place. We're seeing his bat look like it did in 2019, where he was one of the best hitters on the team. He was a 300 hitter that year. So that begs the question, what do you value more? Do you value the defense or do you value the offense? And an argument can be made for both sides. You could say, listen, I don't care how good his offense is. If you can't make a routine play and you're going to give the other team outs and every time a ball gets hit to you, you're going to botch it and it's going to turn into a four-run inning, I don't need that. So I want him on the bench. And I would understand where you're coming from because defense has gone ignored for a lot of Sandy Alderson's teams that he constructed. So I understand where you'd be coming from if you said that. But I would also understand if you said, look, Nobody on this team is hitting right now. He's the only person, so you need his bat in the lineup. I don't care what he does in the field. You need his bat. And if you felt that way about it, I couldn't say I disagreed with you. So that's why it's a fascinating question that I don't have a definitive answer to. And part of the reason why it's so frustrating is because you see that J.D. Davis has the tools to be successful at third base. He's got an absolute cannon of an arm. He's consistently clocked at 92, 93 miles an hour, throwing the ball across the diamond. And for the most part, I know he botched the ground ball in the aforementioned game against the Cubs. But for the most part, the miscues that Davis has had at third base has not been because of his glove. It's been because of his arm, because he doesn't know how to harness it. And he doesn't have proper footwork. A lot of times he's... he's, skipping and hop-stepping and triple-pumping because he's so nervous to let the ball go because he's got such a cannon for an arm. So if he can feel the ball with his glove and he's got that good of an arm, he should be able to play the position. So it's part mental, part of it is technique. Like I said, he's got shoddy footwork. That kind of thing I think can be worked on. But again... What's your patience level to let him work on things and get through those growing pains? Because if he's going to make errors that are going to lead to four, five, six, seven run innings, and you're going to be losing ball games because of it, then your patience level for him going through those growing pains is not very high. And like I said before, it makes it so much so much more complicating because he's hitting over 400. He's one of the only hitters on this team who is actually producing. On a daily basis. And Davis is another guy. I know I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. About how when there's runners in scoring position. It seems like everyone on this team. Their approach completely changes. 
And I mentioned Jeff McNeil is the only guy whose approach does not change. I think you can throw J.D. Davis into that equation too. He's just got a really good approach. He's one of those guys, I think here's the best way I can put it. Whether he's in a slump or whether he's red hot, every time he gets up to the plate, I'm confident that he can get a hit because he just has a really good approach. He's got a great swing. He looks very relaxed at the plate. He does not chase often, sometimes, but not often. He just brings you the full package at the plate. That's a guy I want up in a run scoring position, in a run scoring situation, I should say. So it's a good question. So, like I said last week, we now have the Twitter account at Mets Mayhem. We have the email Mets Mayhem at gmail.com. So I'm curious to hear what everybody who's listening, what they think about the situation. Are you comfortable with J.D. Davis as your everyday third baseman? Do you place more value on his defensive woes? Or do you pay more attention and put more value on his prowess at the plate? I'm not saying you're wrong either way. But I'm curious to hear what people think. Because in the offseason... There were rumors that the Mets were going to go after Nolan Arenado. There were rumors that they were going to try to swing a trade for Chris Bryant. We even heard the name Matt Chapman thrown out there as a potential uh, as a potential acquisition to come play third base. And whenever a beat writer or SNY or radio host, whenever they put a poll out there about whether or not people were comfortable with J.D. Davis as the everyday third baseman, it seemed like the fan base was split. It seemed like a majority of the fan base was not comfortable, but I think part of the reason that they weren't comfortable is because big, sexy names like Arenado and Bryant and Chapman were being thrown around. Now that those guys are off the table and we're just going with the guys who are currently on the Mets roster and your other options are Jonathan VR or Luis Guillorme, I'm curious to hear what the answer to the question would be now. Are you more comfortable with him as your everyday third baseman? Or would you rather go with Jonathan VR, who's done himself plenty of favors with the opportunities he's gotten so far? Same with Guillaume. So it's an interesting question. Let me know what you think. And I think that's a conversation that's going to be going on all year long. Because I, I think that, listen, even guys who win gold gloves are going to commit errors throughout the season. A guy like J.D. Davis, who is not a gold glover, is going to commit more errors than the gold glover would. So I feel, sadly... I mean, I'm rooting for the kid because he's such an easy guy to root for. I'm hoping he turns things around and he becomes serviceable at third base. I really am. But I have a feeling that this is going to be a conversation that we're going to be having throughout the course of a season. Because there's going to be times where Davis boots a ball and three runs, three unearned runs come in to score, and we're absolutely crucifying the guy because of it. I think there's going to be other times where the offense is sleepwalking through an entire game and Davis is going to give them a jolt of energy with a three-run homer. And we're going to be saying, well, that's why you got to keep his bat in the lineup. It's an age-old question. It's going to be going on all year. So I'm curious to hear what you guys think. So let's look ahead to next week and what the Mets got going on for them moving forward. Here I was preaching that they need to play games on a consistent basis with no cancellations. They need to have a week where they play seven games. Well, that's not going to be the case this week. And frankly, it's just because they have too many off days. So they got a two-game series against the Boston Red Sox coming up on Tuesday and Wednesday. So they're off Monday. They play the two against Boston Tuesday and Wednesday. And then they're off again on Thursday. That's a travel day. And they go back to Philadelphia 
for a three-game series with the Philadelphia Phillies, who, quite frankly, I'm tired of seeing. I don't think we see them again until July after this series, and, and that'll be welcome. I just, I just can't stand the Phillies. I just can't. I don't know what it is. Even when the Phillies are bad, I just hate playing them. It's just an annoying bunch to play. I, I, I don't know what the reasoning is behind it, but I just can't stand playing them. And I love getting a glimpse of everybody around the league. I like playing those 9 p.m. games against the Arizona Diamondbacks. I like those 10 p.m. games against the Giants. I like playing the Reds and the Pirates. Give me some variety. I don't want to keep playing the Phillies over and over again. So that's what's on the docket. Two games against the Red Sox, two off days, and then a three-game series against the Philadelphia Phillies. Um, I believe David Peterson is going to be pitching the first game of the series against the Red Sox, followed by DeGrom. And uh, I think we'll see if the Red Sox are for real because they're kind of catching everyone by surprise so far this year. They're sitting at 14-9. and nine. Everyone thought that they were going to be basement dwellers in the American League East. Um, but, I mean, that offense is on fire. They're leading the league in runs scored, or leading, uh, leading the American League in runs scored, I should say. I believe the uh, Cincinnati Reds are actually leading the league in runs altogether, which is surprising because the Cincinnati Reds are 9-12. and 12. But they score a lot of runs. They give up a lot of runs. So when the Red Sox come to town, we'll kind of see if they're for real. Uh, be a good litmus test against the team that the Mets have not seen so far. And then we get another glimpse of the Phillies. And if things shake up the way it's expected to, you will probably see Stroman, Taiwan Walker, and David Peterson in that series. Uh, Joey Lucchese was optioned to AAA. Again, with all these off days, there's no reason to be running with a five-man rotation. Uh, it's unfortunate for Lucchese because I feel like that's a guy who just needs to work through whatever kinks he has uh, to be successful. But listen, you want... Your top dogs in DeGrom and Stroman and Walker, you want those guys pitching as much as possible, and you don't want to have to go with a five-man rotation unless you absolutely have to. And let's be honest, Lucchese does not have a rotation spot when Carlos Carrasco comes back. And Carlos Carrasco is going to be an integral part of this year's team. So if they can get through as many uh, four-man rotation go-arounds as they can before Carrasco comes back, that's great. It's great. I'm a big Lucchese fan. I think he's got a ton of potential, but Carrasco is a better pitcher. And the other four guys in the rotation are better than Lucchese. It, it's just a simple fact. So we'll see how this week shakes out. Um, and that'll do it for episode three. So again, a lot of positivity when it comes to DeGrom and the depth pieces. Uh, not necessarily negativity, but just a legitimate question when it comes to J.D. Davis and his capability of playing third base on an everyday basis. So like I said, you can follow us on Twitter at Mets Mayhem is the handle. Um, you can send in fan questions. You can send in responses to anything that I talk about on the episodes at MetsMayhem at gmail.com. Um, you can follow me on my personal Twitter account, Andrew May underscore 21 on Twitter. Uh, follow me on Instagram, A underscore May 21. That's where the podcast links will go as well, available on all platforms. And that'll do it for episode three. So hopefully the Mets can uh, get the bats going in week four get some wins, maintain their lead in the NL East. They are still in first place. And fortunately for the Mets, um, every time they win, it seems like all the other teams lose. So even though they haven't fully hit their stride yet, the National League East does not look as good as everyone thought that they were going to look. The Braves look lost. We knew the Marlins were not that good. Phillies lackluster. Sometimes they hit, sometimes they don't. Sometimes they pitch well, sometimes they don't. And the Nationals are just a totally different team without Juan Soto in the lineup. They'll be better when he comes back. But again, you know, 
Max Scherzer, another year older. Steven Strasburg having arm troubles again. Patrick Corbin has not been great. No more Anthony Rendon in that lineup. I mean, just a different team. No more Adam Eaton in that lineup. So the Nationals are going to be taking a significant step back. And I'm not complaining because I hate the Nationals too. So follow us on social media. Send us any questions, concerns, comments, responses to the email, metsmayhem at gmail.com. And I look forward to talking to you guys next week. So uh, episode three in the books. Looking forward to episode four. And as always, let's go Mets. See you guys later.